Okay, it's so nice to be here and see people that I haven't seen in such a long time. <laughs> Even though I'm only seeing, I'm not seeing your smiles, I'm only seeing <laughs> your eyes, but that's okay. I'm just glad, glad to be here and to see all of you. Um, let's see, as we've been going through Mark, I have um, really been impressed with the way that um, Jesus loves so many different kinds of people. Um, he loves people that are in crowds. He lovingly cares for them. He loves um, you know, people that are nobodies in the eyes of the world. And he reaches out to them. And he loves his disciples, who, as we're going to see in this section, are people very much like us, are just as um, broken as we are, and as we are, as we walk in our relationship with the Lord. So uh, I've just really enjoyed seeing that. You know, I, uh, this morning, John and I were out for a walk, and we, um, as we were walking, I was thinking about the passage tonight, and I thought of a song from 40 years ago. <laughs> and it's, it's by, it was sung by, now, m- maybe the majority of you have never heard this person's name before, Debbie Boone. But anyway, the refrain of the song is, um, teach me how to love the way that you love to pour out my life for another. And that just sort of captured for me the feelings that I had as I looked at Jesus through um, through Mark. So let's, let's dig into it tonight and see what Um, what we come up with. But before I do that, I have a personal example that I want to give you. It's actually a story about how God's love totally overwhelmed me and blew me away. Now, I know that some of you have probably heard this before, and uh, so I apologize, (laughs) but I I thought of this as soon as I began thinking along these lines. This happened many years um, after I had actually become um, become aware of God's love for me. And it, it happened when John and I were living in Hong Kong. We lived there for three years, and um, we absolutely loved those first three years that we were there. Uh, John was there for his secular job, and we loved being there. We loved ex- I, I loved exploring the area. I found friends to be with. Um, We found a good church to go to. It was a wonderful time. But as we got closer to returning home, John was offered a position at the church. But because we both had older parents um, that were beginning to need more care, we felt we needed to say no. That was a hard decision for both of us, but I felt it particularly because I had wanted, always wanted to live overseas and try and connect with people of another culture. So as we came home to care for them, their care became more and more involved. And while I appeared to perform in the right way, carrying out my responsibilities, my heart was not in it. I was resentful, and I was sometimes often bitter. 
And that was despite the fact that God had given us a really good time during that time with our kids and our grandkids. Our grandkids were going up, and it was wonderful to be able to do things with them and have them over. Well, eventually, all four parents passed away. And after the last one's funeral, a week after, three days after the last one's funeral, we received a call from friends in the church in Hong Kong asking us if we knew anyone who would be willing um, to fill in as pastor. Now, this was the same position that John had been offered many years ago. Enough years had passed that we felt like they, they needed somebody younger, but we offered to help until they had had time and to find somebody permanent, which they expected to happen in about um, six months or so. Well, that eventually fell through. And as a result of that, God gave us uh, three more years to stay, the two and a half more years to live there until someone else became available. As I said, I was totally blown away the goodness of God in giving us such a wonderful opportunity in pouring out his gracious love and patience on me, who had been resentful and rebellious and self-focused, even while I tried to care for my parents. And that totally astounded me. I still am amazed when I think about that story. Well, this experience has been one of the touchstones for me of God's bountiful love. I know that this example is nowhere near the cost of the cross and the love that Jesus displayed on the cross. But for me, it was such an addition, such a lavishing of love, even though I was just like the disciples that we're going to see in this section. In Mark 8, 29, we have a pivot point where Peter confesses that they recognize who Jesus is, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer that the Old Testament had talked about. On that confession, Jesus begins to focus more on preparing and teaching them for the high cost that he will pay to establish his kingdom and the cost for them if they continue following him. As we saw in chapter 9, 33, and 34, the disciples have focused more on who's going to help Jesus run the show. Who will have the seats of power? Their focus has turned inward to their desires and to their heart, while Jesus' focus has turned outward to them and to others. Let's read from 17 uh, to 20 to 22. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him 
and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Did you hear that first phrase in verse 17? As he was setting out on his journey, this was the journey that would end in Jerusalem at the cross. The disciples sense his intensity and purposefulness as we see in verse 32. They were amazed and afraid. There was something happening that they couldn't understand. But even in the middle of that intensity, Jesus stops and he looks up at the man who ran up to him and knelt before him, in a way, honoring uh, Jesus. Well, Mark tells us that he's a rich man, and Matthew and Luke uh, tell us that he was young and and a ruler. Jesus saw this man, he saw his heart, and he saw that he was sincere, that he was eager, and that he desired a really good thing, eternal life. I think... Jesus saw really deeply into his heart. And I think he knew what compelled this man. And yet Jesus' own heart went out to him. He cared for him deeply. That's why I think he went right to the core issue of this man's heart. Life in the kingdom comes only from knowing the truly good teacher by loving and following him. Did you notice what Jesus left out of the commandments? The first four. Putting God first, not having any idols, taking God's name and not taking God's name in vain, and keeping the Sabbath. All the commandments that reflect how to understand, honor, and acknowledge that He is a good God in the ultimate sense, a truly good teacher one worthy of radical commitment. This young man understood the outward commandments, the things that would make him look good good to others, but not the heart commitment that truly enables radical love and the commitment of discipleship. The heart and life is willing to say on a daily basis, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Something else occupied his heart. Blomberg says in his book, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, one thing stands in the way of his loving Jesus, his possessions. They rule his life. They are who he is, how he defines himself, his lifestyle, his place in the community, and his standing. In verse 22, Mark tells us the young man was disheartened. The young man lost heart. He lost his passion. He lost his joy, even his goal of eternal life. He went away full sorrow. He thought, and the disciples did too, that he was the perfect candidate to be a disciple 
He had all the qualifications, but he was unwilling to give his heart to Jesus. Cole, uh, Cole in his commentary, says that um, this, he is the only one in Mark who walked away from Jesus sad. He walked away from God incarnate. Jesus, who loved him. What a tremendously sad story. Jesus loved him. He offered him his heart, his very self. But the humanly righteous, rich young ruler instead gave his heart to his possessions, his standing in the community. He exchanged temporal, fading treasures for treasures in heaven. For Jesus is him very, his very self. Listen to Paul in Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul willingly gave up all earthly claims to greatness his worldly identity in circumcision and being Jewish, his family pride, his skill at interpreting the law, his misguided passions, all for the privilege of knowing Jesus and trusting him for his completed work on the cross and being willing to suffer for him. What a challenge I think this is for us. What is it that we as his followers, even now, are exchanging for loving God, for following him wholeheartedly? Even as Jesus exposed this man's heart, we need him to expose our hearts to to let us see what we allow to take his place. He loves us, and he's willing to do it if we allow him to. Jesus knew it would not be easy to follow wholeheartedly. He acknowledges that to the disciples with this rather um, shocking illustration, for them anyway. But what a vivid picture it is that he gives them. One of the largest animals they knew going through one of the smallest openings, the eye of a needle that they can imagine. No wonder they are astonished. Let me briefly mention at this point that most commentary, commentaries nowadays feel that um, this is really just an illustration. It used to be uh, that people thought there was an actual gate that would eventually be discovered in the uh, wall, walls around Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. Camels would have to kneel and get unloaded uh, to get through it. But that gate has never been identified, so as a result, they feel that it's more likely that this is an illustration. Now, in both the Jewish and the pagan cultures, wealth was often seen as God's blessing. You lived a good life. You were honored, admired, and rewarded with more things. I think maybe we have a tendency to that, too. Blomberg says the attitude was that if a godly rich person cannot be saved, who can? Well, Jesus tells them that the impossible 
becomes possible only with God. We know from the Gospels and from Paul's letters that a number of wealthy people did become followers of of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, who helped to care for Jesus' body after his death. There were several women of Herod's household who financially supported Jesus and the disciples. We see that in Luke 8.3. And Paul listed some of the names of his fellow workers who were wealthy at the end of Romans. But wealth is dangerous because it so often leads us to self-righteousness. And indeed, that was the rich young man's problem. Jesus wants his disciples, and he wants us to be aware of that temptation of wealth. Well, Peter has a quick response. It's as if, as if Peter said, look here, what about us? We gave up everything and followed you. What a natural response. Leave it to Peter to show us our hearts. It's so natural for us to ask, what reward do we get? Jesus sees Peter's heart, and still he lovingly doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he reminds Peter and the others of something even bigger than they can imagine. The restoration of all that was theirs, Jesus says, and even more, a hundred times more. N.T. Wright says, God's kingdom, even now, is an expanding kingdom, even in this present age, and it will continue into the age to come. In becoming disciples, they become part of a bigger family, all those who follow Jesus and are part of the church universal, a diverse spiritual family. Uh, One of the reasons we loved the church in Hong Kong so much when we were there was that they had 22 different nationalities represented, along with um, some different uh, denominations also. Do you come to church knowing that the family with young children two paws away is your family? that the black and Asian believers in our communities are our brothers and sisters to be loved, cared for, and fellowshiped with? Is this a reality for us? I think it is for many missionaries. And one example from my lifetime who has spoken um, powerfully to me is a woman called Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband and four other young men were martyred by a group of South American Indians. After that, she and her her daughter, who was three at the time, went back to live with these people and saw many of them become brothers and sisters in God's kingdom. She has said that the greatest joys come out of the greatest sorrows. Life comes out of death. Jesus reminds the disciples that this kingdom that he is growing is an upside-down kingdom, in verse 31. God's kingdom is not anything like our little kingdoms. In his kingdom, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
It's a kingdom that's unexpectedly different. In God's kingdom, the one who gives the least is often the one who gives the most. In Mark 12, 41 to 44, we're going to see the widow who put two small copper coins, equaling a penny, into the temple offering box. Jesus said about her that in her poverty, she put in all she had, giving more than those who had given out of their abundance. Well, the disciples continue to struggle with making sense of Jesus' descriptions of the kingdom in contrast to their own ideas of what the kingdom should be like. Even as Jesus moves towards the cross, more and more burdened by what lay ahead, he lovingly and patiently continues to teach them. As they walk, he tells them for the third time about his coming crucifixion, adding more uh, uh, gruesome details about what will happen to him. You remember a recent walk that they had with Jesus? When Jesus also talked about his coming death and resurrection in chapter 9, what were they doing? They were arguing about who was the greatest. Well, James and John have figured out a way to get ahead of all the others. They continue focused on a political kingdom, which they hope will be established on the earth. And so they request a favor. In fact, they almost, if you read it, almost demand a favor. They would like to sit in the two best seats of the kingdom, one on either side of Jesus in the government that he forms. In Matthew chapter 20, um, he points out that, that their mother was part of this lobbying effort. One wanted to sit on the right, the seat of honor, and the other on the left, the seat of the favored friend. Now, remember James and John. Think back about what you know about them. They were called the sons of thunder. And not too long ago in chapter 9, they wanted to call down judgment on someone who was not in their select group. What might they do with that kind of power on Jesus' right and left? Would their kingdom really be any better than the Romans? I love this point that a couple of the commentaries make. They point out that the two people actually on Jesus' right and left when he was glorified on the cross were criminals. The men to whom Jesus said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the upside-down kingdom. I am astounded by the way Jesus continues loving these men, and obviously me too, when I have thoughts only for myself and my plans. What compassion and patience. He's saddened by their lack of understanding, but he's still gentle with them. With love and compassion, he looks at James and John, and he says, in essence, you overestimate yourselves. 
They have no idea what Jesus is moving toward. But Jesus tells them plainly here, it is the cup of wrath, he says. It is the baptism of death. The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and many others, spoke often of God's wrath being poured out as a cup of judgment on the evilness of the nations and of his own people, Israel. This is the message that we've been seeing in Habakkuk uh, on Sunday mornings. But Jesus is telling them that he will drink that cup. It will be poured out on him. He will experience the full power of God's wrath in his own body on the cross so that his people and the nations need not experience the punishment of God's judgment for their sins. The cross would be the fulfillment of the baptism that John the Baptist had performed at the start of Jesus' public ministry when Jesus identified himself with us. And John could say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus taking their place. Jesus taking our place. That our sins may be forgiven taken away, covered over. We cannot, how can we not be touched by what Jesus is saying here? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What an exchange. Jesus tells them gently, but with a heavy heart, that they will indeed come to understand something of his suffering in their own future. Their being his disciples would mean persecution and suffering for his sake. History tells us that James was beheaded, and and we know that John suffered a lonely exile on a cold island of Patmos, (laughs) Um, Cole says in his commentary that when Jesus could have used comfort, support, and willing hearts in the journey, their thoughts are for themselves. What a lonely, misunderstood journey Jesus is on. Well, when the other ten disciples learn of this request, having forgotten their previous argument about who was the greatest, they are furious. And Jesus has to step in and become their peacemaker. In verse 42, Jesus says, it says that Jesus called them to himself. I love that phrase, that he called them to himself. These arguing fighting, self-focused disciples. That was what they needed to be called to him, to come before him, and it's what we need in these confusing times to come to Jesus, to hear his continued call to follow him, to see his sacrifice to serve us as he buys us back from the ways of the world.
the political kingdoms and the self-serving lifestyles that keep us from patterning ourselves after him. John Stott says, Our world, even the church, is full of James and Johns, go-getters and status-seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring our life by achievements and everlastingly dreaming of success. Jesus is the model, and we are to follow. An otherworldly pattern. They are not to be ruling authorities, but rather ordinary house servants, a doulos. Not to be first, but last. Not to be great, but to be a servant. Not to save our lives, but to lose them. To forfeit the world and gain our own soul. Patterning ourselves after him, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Giving his life as a ransom for many. In closing, let me just read this from Sinclair Ferguson. The way of the disciple is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. True discipleship has its, at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others. But discipleship is also a modeling process. It means being like Jesus. He came to serve others, not to be served by them. He came to give his life for others. If James and John and all the others really were going to be his disciples, then it was time they began to live like their master. And he ends this section with a very simple sentence. The simple words of Jesus are always the most difficult, aren't they? Okay, how about we pray? Father, how we um, do thank you for the example that you have given us in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love, love of the Father and love of us, uh, people who are just like your disciples, constantly being pulled back to our own desires, our own thoughts, about what your kingdom should be instead of uh, being able to follow clearly the idea of pouring out our lives for one another. Father, uh, we'd ask, as that song from so many years ago said, teach us how to love the way that you love, to pour out our lives for another. Thank you again, Lord Jesus for your sacrifice to take our place. Um, And we thank you that that's where our hope, our joy, our strength, and our passion can come from. In your name we pray. Amen.